last week on Uncommon Law. You have to find out the unwritten rules of the game very quickly before you break them. When it comes to big law firms, black lawyers often find the deck stacked against them, both in terms of advancement opportunities and also just feeling part of the team. I just remember feeling just like I was different from everyone else. I didn't really fit in. So what are firms and their clients doing to fix it? Firms need to spend more time thinking about not just how they get in Rainbow Coalition of Faces, but how they keep them. Not just how are they doing on recruitment of diverse attorneys, but where are those attorneys falling within the hierarchy of the firm? Are they making equity partners? You're listening to Uncommon Law, a narrative podcast series from the Bloomberg Industry Group. My name's Adam Allington. And I'm Ayana Alexander. Hey, Ayana. How are you? Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. So are you ready to get into the weeds about law schools? I am. But before we do that, I think we just need to tell people that that enthusiastic voice you're hearing is Ayana Alexander, the social justice reporter at Bloomberg Law. And we've brought her into the podcast today to talk about how issues of diversity and inclusion in the legal profession are impacting the pipeline. Yeah, so when people talk about the pipeline, they're basically referring to everything that goes into getting students to enroll in law school, graduate, and then get hired by a firm. And to be clear, this also includes all of the recruitment and hiring practices at the law firms themselves. They're part of the pipeline, too. As previous listeners already know, big law in particular has the reputation of being one of the least diverse industries in America, especially when it comes to black lawyers, which amount to roughly 5% of attorneys and less than 2% for partners. Part of the lack of diversity may be attributed to the fact that elite firms tend to recruit and hire from law schools in the T14, the top 14. And not only are these schools expensive and hard to get into, but they just don't graduate enough students to diversify an entire corporate sector. Yeah, according to the American Bar Association enrollment data for this year's 1L class, black students make up 8.7% of total enrollments at the top five law schools ranked by U.S. News and World Report. Leading the group is number two ranked Stanford, where black students account for 9.8% of a class of 173 students. At Yale Law School, the nation's highest-ranked law school, there were just 16 students who identify as black, or 7.7% of a class of 209. So instead of a pipeline, the more accurate metaphor in this case might be something like a garden hose. One of the major problems that law firms face when it comes to diversifying their ranks are the pipeline issue, which is what implicates law schools. We need a greater pipeline of Uh, black students and students of color coming through law schools in the first place. Song Richardson is dean at the University of California Irvine School of Law. She says one way to move the industry toward being more inclusive would be for firms to stop placing so much stock in law school rankings, which she feels have exacerbated and perpetuated the lack of diversity at firms, while also creating an arms race among law schools for metrics. So if we as, we, as law schools have, because of the pressure of U.S. news, focus so much attention on taking only those students who are at the very top of the um, quartiles of the LSAT, that in and of itself will reduce the pipeline of Black students to highly ranked schools. 
to be clear, people do get hired at big law firms, even if you graduated from a school outside the T14. But the farther down the ranks you go, the more impressive your other metrics need to be. We have become obsessed with rankings as shorthand for merit. And that is a very seductive, easy thing to do because it makes our decision making so much easier. It is much more difficult to try to determine what are the real ways to figure out who will be successful. And so I often say, look at your ranks. Look at where your most successful partners have come from. There's not necessarily an association between being top of your class at Harvard Law School and being the best, most innovative lawyer at the firm. If we really want this time to be different, then everything should be on the table. Everything should be re-examined to determine, can we do things differently to get a different result? Because if we keep doing things the same way, nothing will change, this moment will pass, and everything will go back to the way that it always has functioned. Getting firms to change the way they do recruiting would be a big shift. Along with recruiting concerns, others say that big law also needs to do more to establish credibility among some black students who say they feel torn between helping their community versus going to work at large corporate firms. I think a lot of the stigma for big law comes from the idea of selling out your community. Oh, Mm -hmm. you're working for these white people. You're helping this large corporation become more rich. Mariah Levy is a second-year law student at Northwestern University. She's also the president of the school's Black Law Students Association. I do think there's a divide between like people that are interested in helping the public and people that are interested in helping corporations. I don't think it needs to be that way. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to have Black people everywhere, but it's very easy to lose sight of that when you know one person is helping someone get out of jail And the other is reviewing documents for some rich company. I think it's worth mentioning here that lots of people who go on to practice for large law firms also do substantial public interest work, pro bono. Still, the reputation does exist. Despite that stigma, Levy is hoping to start her legal career at a big law firm before one day moving on to do advocacy work. And as to how she deals with balancing what's best for her career versus serving her community... Levy told me that's something she still struggles with. I think I've internalized that either or mentality. Um, It's very, it's really hard for me to shake the feeling. I would say the biggest thing that helps me like internalize the benefits of pursuing a career with a corporation or a large law firm is just representation. I think it's important to have black lawyers everywhere. And, you know, I'm in the community too. Like I deserve money and moving up the economic ladder and job opportunities that aren't just focused on my identity or like the notion of giving back. Like I just, so much of it is bigger than any one person. If the argument is that big law focuses too heavily on the T14 and misses out on talented black law school graduates, one exception is Howard University, which comes in at 107 in the U.S. News rankings. One of the things that I see is if you look at all the HBCU law schools, for example, we are really the only one that has a large amount of recruiting from the from the top 100 law firms. 
Danielle Holly Walker is the dean of Howard Law School, one of the nation's oldest historically black universities. She also thinks that the conversation and the expectations around recruitment are changing. And that's partly due, she says, to the willingness of the next generation of lawyers to hold firms accountable. This generation is definitely a generation of accountability, right? Some people call it cancel culture. Some people call it accountability, right? And I think they're a generation, the recent graduates are a generation that's very much about accountability. They want to know, you know, what have the outcomes been? Um, And so I think we're headed into this new place where people are going to be held a lot more accountable for those outcomes. For her part, Holly Walker says the question of values will be a big factor in determining whether future efforts to hire and retain Black lawyers are successful, or if all the public statements and programs are just window dressing. I don't know if we want to call this the second iteration of diversity inclusion. If the first iteration was just open the doors and let's see who comes. The second iteration of diversity inclusion is the era that we've been in where you hire you know, a, you have a chair of the diversity and inclusion committee, you know, you go hire at HBCU law schools, etc. I think we're almost to a third wave of diversity and inclusion, where we're going to stop asking as much about, did you do the proper window dressing? And there's going to be a lot more accountability. At the same time, Holly Walker also thinks that law schools need to be aggressive about pushing back on the idea that Black lawyers can't find a good home in corporate law, especially as more law firms look to improve their diversity rankings. Yeah, and while diversity and inclusion committees are an important tool in achieving that, she says it's also wrong to assume that every Black associate will want to become the face of the company's diversity efforts. This is something that Black lawyers talk about, the idea of diversity fatigue. Which, to be clear, doesn't mean that you're not thankful that those committees and initiatives exist, but potentially being the face of the company while also being a junior associate is a really hard job. I have actually gotten complaints from law firms who said, we recruited student X, we hired them in, and then when they got here, they said that they didn't want to be on any any committees that had to do with their identity. So if they're LGBTQ, they don't want to be assigned to the LGBTQ committee. If they are black, they don't want to be assigned to your, you know, diversity and inclusion committee. And I think that individualism, right, that kind of you hired me for who I am and I'm not going to then, you know, join all these different groups because it keeps me from billing. It keeps me from networking with other people in the firm. It basically places me in a box and I don't want to be in that box. Despite any lingering stigma against working in big law, others say the benefits of having black and brown attorneys in all areas of the legal profession actually does benefit the broader community. There is this narrative that maybe you're selling out if you end up in a corporate firm or you don't care about investing in the community or fighting social justice. But I personally disagree with that because I think everyone has their own set of skills, talents and passions that can enable them to advocate for our communities um, in their own way. Rachel Barnes is a student at the University of Virginia Law School. She's also the chair of the National Black Law Students Association. 
After she graduates, Barnes will be going to work at Morgan Lewis and Bacchius in Philadelphia, a firm which currently places seventh on the Amlaw 200 rankings. She feels one big factor that would benefit the pipeline would be to do more outreach to minority law students, especially in ways that exposes them to some of the benefits bigger firms have to offer. I think one big challenge is exposure. A lot of times, especially Black law students were exposed to criminal justice issues, civil litigation issues, and labor and employment. That's a lot of times what my peers express interest in and express an understanding about. And I think a lot of times because of that, it can be challenging to pursue other options if you've never seen it. You know, I think it's probably true for most law students that unless you have a relative or a parent who's worked at a corporate firm, the only thing you really know about what a job working in big law would be like is that they make a lot of money. Yeah, I think that's a common understanding of big law life. But I think it's also true that for Black students like Barnes, there are other issues at play, such as do I want to go to work somewhere where I might be one of just a handful or perhaps the only Black lawyer? Definitely. Even for myself, I had to take that into consideration because you have to, as in my mind, as a Black future lawyer, consider do I want to find a pre-established Black community that I can just be a part of at a firm? Or do I want to be the pioneer, which means I have to be the face of everything, which means they're going to come to me for all the questions. Along with the challenges associates face when trying to fit into a largely white corporate culture, the issue of bias and preconceived notions is something that definitely cuts both ways especially when it comes to law firms being asked to do things differently than they've done in the past. Again, Howard's Danielle Holly-Walker. You know, a lot of the language around legal employers, I had a legal employer tell me once, um, you know, the reason we don't uh, recruit a lot of African-American lawyers is because our firm has a culture of meritocracy. And I was stunned. I was like, so you're saying that a culture of meritocracy prevents you from having African-American lawyers at your firm? I'm like, you probably should think about that statement and then come back. I mean, even though he said it to me directly, that's a conversation that has happens behind closed doors all the time about hiring African-Americans in the legal profession is you know, we're going to have to make concessions. We're going to have to lower standards. This idea that black law students, even ones who've graduated from elite schools or at the top of their class, represent a risk is something that's deeply embedded in a racialized bias that's existed among law firm managers for decades. Oftentimes you have the standard checklist that exists and this checklist has objective criteria utilized by schools or firms to gauge fit, right? And that is a very important word, fit, the fit of a potential candidate. Sadale Malaku is a sociologist and author of the book, You Don't Look Like a Lawyer. Despite law firms' stated commitments to equality and inclusion, Malaku points out that white men have continued to dominate elite law firm culture. And this is despite the fact that more women and non-white lawyers are graduating from law schools. And part of the reason is because the subjective way black and white students are evaluated. 
So, you know, there are a lot of students who may not do so well in testing, but end up being incredible uh, uh, professionals in whatever it is they do. The fact that we even have to have conversations around students of color and, and qualification all, all, always implies that they're not qualified. And that's a problem because there's a significant number of white candidates who don't qualify in the same way. these narratives that surround affirmative action, right? Or diversity hire. So how this actually works to create self-doubt among students and associates of color, as well as hyper-visibility when errors are made. So, you know, when a, when an associate, uh, a black associate makes an error in a deal, it's oftentimes seen as a confirmation that they weren't qualified to be there to begin with, right? That they must've been a token or, or a diversity hire. Whereas, you know, you don't have that same penalty uh, experienced by white students or uh, white associates. This added pressure that comes with affirmative action programs is something that Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas talked about during a 2007 interview with CBS's 60 Minutes. I honestly, honestly believed that Yale thought that having a kid who came from working people in the South, who'd grown up through segregation, that this kid who'd prospered, who'd done well, every single place he'd ever been, whether an all-white school, all-black school, he's always done well, he will do well here, and it will benefit both him and Yale. That's what I thought. Well, that isn't what it was converted to. It was converted to, well, you're here because you're black. It's also worth emphasizing here that Yale Law is, you know, one of, if not the most prestigious law school in the country. And that includes back in the early 70s when Justice Thomas was there. However, as much as it stung to hear from his teachers back in the South that he was doing well despite his race, Thomas said the unspoken sentiment at Yale that he only got in because of his race felt much worse. You know, I was in debt, I needed a job, and I couldn't get a job. And I just saw the discounting of my degree uh, happen before my eyes. That degree meant one thing for whites and another thing for blacks. But even all these years later, students still say that the experience of being a minority law student is one of constantly trying to prove you belong, while also secretly doubting if it's true. You know, when you first enter law school, there's a huge amount of imposter feelings and, 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 and syndrome really that rears its head. Rashad Abdallah is a second-year law student at the University of Michigan. But before going to law school, he spent four years in the Army, including a tour of Afghanistan, where he was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, the Army's second-highest medal for valor in combat. But even for someone like that, as a black man, Abdallah said he still felt like an outsider. You know, you go there and subconsciously, you know, you think you may not be as worthy to be there as your as your, your white peers. And then the second thing is, via your, your studies, the, the, the cases you read, it's hard not to feel like the way this institution was set up was not for you to be the one, you know, um, practicing law, right? Abdallah says those feelings of frustration and doubt were further compounded by the deaths of George Floyd and others. And all this while he was also trying to make a positive impression during his first spring internship at a big law firm. And so, you know, for me, it was really hard to see that because 
I think when you kind of study the law and kind of in this field, you know that things won't get better in large ways until you see substantive legislative change. And so, you know, December for sure for me was tough because you do have some kind of guilt that as a black person, you should be doing more. I I should be doing more to, to help, but also kind of understand that it's not my fault that I live in a country where the law has been change and altered in a way to allow these terrible things to um, take place. Abdallah's experience isn't a new one to me. In fact, I dealt with a lot of guilt and fatigue myself. How do I make sure I'm protecting my own mental health when all of these killings are happening to people who look like me? while also using any platform to help my community through my job. It's a catch-22 that I still struggle with. Yeah, and even though white people may also feel sad or outraged by these events too, I think the mistake that many of us make is then assuming that our emotional response is the same as our Black friends and colleagues. This can be especially true for Black lawyers and law students. That's what Mariah Levy said when she spoke to us. Sometimes it can feel like everything you need to know about being a lawyer is designed to make you doubt your own lived experience. It's almost like the classroom experience is gaslighting us because you're taught to think like the law is so neutral. This is for everyone's protection. But then a lot of us have personal experiences or connections to people with personal experiences of that just not being true. Levy said the experience of existing in a system that wasn't designed with you in mind is precisely why so many law students of color feel pressured to code switch or adapt their behavior to fit the expectations of white audiences. I think the law is already a code switch, even for white students, because you're kind of learning like this new jargon and it's it's foreign to everyone in some some sense. But I also think there are a lot of um, I think there's pressure to code switch not even just in how we talk, but like presentation. I think professionalism is like wrapped up in whiteness and white expectations. And that can be difficult to navigate because a lot of times, like I feel like I'm able to do those things, but also unwilling. And I don't, I don't think that's a point that, you know, a lot of, a lot of gatekeepers of professionalism can appreciate. I think it is pretty common for black people to feel the need to coach switch. It's a literal switch from the moment you walk through the door. And I know for younger Black people, much like myself, the idea of code switching can be a tough pill to swallow. I think sometimes it's like, oh, these Black students, like they don't know how to act. They don't know what to say. Let's give them extra. Like, let's have them have the diversity mentor. Let's have them have like literally, I don't know, like the professional etiquette workshop. And it's like, nah, I know what you want me to do. And I just don't want to. So... Yikes. (laughs) There is also a body of sociological research suggesting that code switching can generate both positive and negative outcomes for Black employees. On the positive side, researchers say, code switching increases perception of professionalism and the likelihood of being hired. At the same time, along with being an inconvenience, overtime code switching can also carry a huge emotional toll. When I hear the term code switching or conforming, you know, I'm a big black man. The idea that I could blend in using language just seemed kind of futile. 
So conforming or being something I'm not didn't seem like a winning strategy. Wendell Taylor is a managing partner with the Hunton Andrews Kurth Law Firm. You heard from him in episode one. From Taylor's perspective, he says he sees it a slightly different way, that having worked in a predominantly white world for most of his career, he has a lot more knowledge of white culture than his non-white colleagues have of his culture. But I don't see it as code switching to tailor my interactions with people I'm interacting with. Um, I've gotten to be good friends with a guy from office services at my firm who I see several times a day. His name's Breezy. When we see each other, we don't shake hands. We give each other the Wakanda salute from the movie Black Panther, right? Wakanda forever! And it doesn't matter if I see him alone in my office or if he's walking by a cocktail reception where I'm with the majority white crowd. We give each other the Wakanda salute. Now, I don't change who I am and shake his hand because I'm in a room full of white people. You know, he said that he appreciates that about me. But I also don't go around Wakanda saluting people that I typically shake hands with. So to me, the bottom line is you should be comfortable in your own skin and you owe it to yourself to be yourself. But others point out that part of being comfortable in your own skin involves feeling like your identity and your culture are in fact valid, which isn't always the case for people of color. Ellie Mistal is the justice correspondent for The Nation magazine, before that, he was a legal journalist and graduate of Harvard Law School. Mistal says law schools also need to revisit some very basic assumptions about legal training, such as the idea that one's cultural perspective is somehow problematic. As a student of color, I think that the, the biggest change was that in college, your difference is celebrated. Right? Maybe not at all college. I mean, again, I went to Harvard. I don't, maybe that's different for a student at Baylor. I don't know. But at, you know, Ivy League elite institutions, your difference is celebrated. Your experiences are valid. Your lived experiences are relevant to many of the classes and the discussions that you're in. That it's affirming in a lot of ways. In law school, your differences are problematic. You're not supposed to bring your lived experiences into the classroom. You're supposed to excise them out of your body and pretend that they never existed. Obviously, Mistal says many parts of legal training aren't subjective based on one's lived experience. But he says you also just can't ignore the fact that when most of our legal standards and practices were created, they weren't designed with people of color in mind. So when you're trying to force people into the box, the box was made by white cis hetero males. And so if you are anything other than that, as they try to jam you into that box, it, it can be bracing and abrasive to parts of yourself that you think are, you know, quite valuable, right? can kind of accept the white cis male hetero box and, and, and live in that space, or you can, you know, rage, rage, rage against the dying of the light. And even beyond just the pure statistics approach to diversifying the pipeline, Mistal says over-focusing on T14 law schools also has a winnowing effect on the thought diversity pipeline. 
um, because I can try to retain my own lived difference blah, 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 as much as possible. But fundamentally, I went to Harvard College and Harvard Law School. I have more intellectually in common, most likely, with another white law student who went to Harvard College and Harvard Law School. And when you only take people like me into big law, you are winnowing the diversity of your program. As I pointed out earlier, big law doesn't focus exclusively on recruiting from elite law schools. You can get into a big law firm if you're at the top of your class at a lower ranked school. And there are in fact plenty of law firm leaders who did graduate from schools outside the T-14. However, when it comes to black law firm leaders, that's rarely the case. If it was good enough for you then, why isn't it good enough now? What, ma what makes you different? Merle Vaughn calls herself a recovering lawyer. But her official title is that she's a legal recruiter and major Lindsay in Africa. For the most part, she places partners in major law firms and also serves as the firm's diversity practice leader. But when she was a junior associate at Cooley in the late 80s, Vaughn said the corporate culture was still very white. And she says it was frustrating at times not to see yourself or your culture reflected in the company values. I mean, it was little things like, you know, Martin Luther King Day was not celebrated. And I, that made me angry. It just made me angry. And so, you know, there wasn't really anything I could say. So what I did was I stopped on the way to the office. I bought cupcakes and I took them around to each person's office and said, happy Martin Luther King Day. You know, and especially back then, if that's who you were, it, it, it you know, was going to be a little bit difficult to make it through. But these days, Vaughn says the realities that law firms face are much different, and the pressure to create diverse legal teams is real in ways that it wasn't before. And because of that, there also needs to be a new approach to recruiting and also retaining diverse attorneys after they're hired. That recruiting has to be intentional. It's not opportunistic, which is how most law firms work. It's, oh, you know, if you see somebody who's like this, please send them our way. If you if a firm says that to me more than one time and I've told them that's not how it works, then I just move on to the next firm. You know, and and I'm tired of the excuses, you know, the idea, you know, they're you know, not qualified and we're not going to you know, we don't want to lower our standards. I will hang up on you if you say to me, you don't want to lower your standards. You know, all of those, you know, typical comments that are basically microaggressions, basically macroaggressions are, are the things that, that people who are making these hiring decisions need to come to terms with and, and they need to, to educate themselves on, on the effects that they're having when they try to bring people in to their firms. And even for firms that haven't had a good track record when it comes to diversity, Vaughn says it's never too soon to start the process of improvement. And for most firms, that starts with just a few hires. But the key factor, she says, is being willing to do things differently. What are you gonna do? You don't need, you know, do you need 100 people to be out there? No, because you can't hire 100 people. You can hire two. You know, and I can guarantee you there are two. And just as law firms are changing, law students are as well. 
All three of the students we spoke with for this episode talked about the importance of working somewhere that is not only committed to hiring black and brown attorneys, but also shares the same values as them, something that many firms were hesitant to do in years past, especially when it came to topics like police violence or criminal justice reform. I think at this point, everyone is on notice that if your culture was not already inclusive, the expectation is it needs to be progressing in that direction. My black colleagues who I speak with who are already in law firm environments, a lot of times rely on each other for support and don't expect the firm to take a stance on certain issues or to support them in certain ways. Uh, I've been very lucky that my firm is uh, one that is very intentional about trying to do better. You pay attention. You talk about with your with your peers about you know first of all what the firms are actually doing. Like I said before, to help out in these efforts, but also maybe even more importantly, we're noticing who their clients are. We're noticing who they're representing. I I do worry to some extent. Like I think all the initiatives around race and inclusion are great. But it it is unsettling to know that some of this is cyclical, like people have been advocating for civil rights forever (laughs) Um, and people have been oppressed and discriminated against forever. So in that sense, it's like, okay, how much of this is really going to have lasting impact? But I guess I'm like overall, I'm cautiously optimistic. That was Rachel Barnes from UVA, Rashad Abdallah from the University of Michigan, and Mariah Levy from Northwestern. And that's where we're going to leave the discussion for today. A special thank you to my co-host, Bloomberg Law social justice reporter Ayana Alexander. You can follow more of Ayana's reporting on Twitter at AALEX413. Thanks, Ayana. You're welcome, Adam. Talk to you soon. We'll be taking next week off, so the next time you hear from us will be on January 6th, when we will be talking about the specific challenges that women of color face in big law. Uncommon Law was produced by myself, Adam Allington, along with Ayanna Alexander, Lisa Hellam, Marissa Horn, and Megan Tribe. Josh Block is the executive producer of Bloomberg Industry Group Podcasts. Additional editing came from Magashim Mali. Until next year, thanks for listening. Taxes and accounting are complicated. But finding a good tax podcast shouldn't be. I'm Siri Belusu. And I'm Amanda Icone. Listen to Talking Tax, the podcast that breaks down all of these issues on a weekly basis. Every Thursday, Talking Tax will explain the latest issues for you. From what Congress is working on, to legal rulings, to the global digital tax debate. Download and subscribe to Talking Tax wherever you get your podcasts.